5, verses 1 to 2, and the words will be on the screen. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning once again. My name is Bijan. If I've not met you yet, I'm the pastor for our church. And today, the passage you just heard read, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, is our text for our sermon. Now, originally, I was going to preach this morning on the first 14 verses of chapter 5. And yet, when I started working on this sermon a few weeks back, verses 1 and 2, just the passage you heard just now, really stunned me in my tracks. And I decided to break up that passage into two weeks and to spend our time together this morning just looking at those two verses. Because in those verses, what you have is a summary of the gospel, a profound summary of the Christian life. And what I hope to show you this morning, these verses are as beautiful as they are challenging. So let's take a look. And at these two verses, I want to show you this morning the gospel order the gospel call, the gospel's power, and the gospel's beauty. So the gospel order, the gospel call, the gospel power, and the gospel's beauty. Let's take a look. First, the gospel's order. Now, if you come back to verse one of the passage, Paul says, follow God's example. What he's saying is, if you're a Christian, you are meant to... Follow God to live as he did, if you would. That is to say, in other older versions of the Bible, literally translates this phrase, be imitators of God. Now, to follow God's example, to imitate him, doesn't mean in every way, you'll never be omnipresent, for example. But it means in your thoughts, in your values, in your actions, in your character, you are meant to look like God, to reflect him, to imitate him. And Paul goes on to say at the end of verse 1, as dearly loved children. What he's saying is, you're a child, if you're a Christian, you're a child of God. And you are meant to reflect God, to look like him, to imitate him in the same ways that kids imitate their parents. And you know that. Kids, without even trying, do things that their parents do. They look like their parents. A couple weeks ago, I was sitting in the living room with my family And Esme, my three-year-old daughter, said to Michelle, my wife, can we have so-and-so come over for a visit? And Michelle said, oh, maybe we'll see. And Esme said, yes, let's check the schedule to see if they're available. (laughs) So I look up. She's three years old. Why is she saying, let's check the schedule to see if they're available? Because she hears me say something like that all the time. Because she's imitating me. She's becoming like me and not even fully aware that that's happening. And Paul says, if you're a Christian, you should be looking more and more like God every day. You should be imitating him. You should be following his example. His character, his actions, his values, his thoughts should be yours, are they? This is what we see here that Paul's teaching us in verse 1. But, and here's the key. You've got to see the order of Paul's logic. This is the order of the gospel. 
Many people, the default position of their heart is to think of religion or following God like this. This is the default condition. If I obey all the rules, if I live a good enough life, then God will bless me and take me to heaven when I die. We relate to God, even many people in a church like this, relate to God through a posture of performance. I obey and I get salvation. I follow him and he brings me into his family. But look with me again at verse one. Paul says, follow God's example as dearly beloved children. Not follow God's example to become God's dearly loved children, but follow his example because you already are. Friends, this is the order of the gospel and it makes all the difference in the world. Religion, religiosity says, obey and you get brought in the family. Follow the rules and you get the blessing. The gospel says, because of what Jesus does to bring you into his family, that becomes the basis for your obedience. And that's good news. That's the best news in the world because... If God loved you because of the good life that you lived, do you realize what a nervous wreck you would be all the time? You would always be wondering, have I lived good enough today? Did I keep the rules? Have I obeyed enough? But if God brings us into his family by grace and that love becomes the foundation for our obedience, that means that's a love we can rest in because it's a love that's secure, it's unconditional. And it's not based on how you live. It's based in his character and his grace. Think about it this way. If you've been in or are in a romantic relationship and someone that, you know, your partner says to you, why do you love me? Tread carefully. (laughs) Because if they say, why do you love me? And you say, well, I mean, you're so attractive. Inside, that person will say, they love me because of how I look. And they'll always be anxious about how they look. Or if they say, why do you love me? And you say, well, you're just so successful and you're so accomplished at work. I just love how much money you make and how excellent you are at all the stuff you do. They'll always be anxious about having their job and climbing the ladder. What's the most secure kind of love in the world? It's if you were to say to a person, why do you love me? And they were to say, I love you just because I love you not because of anything you do, not because of any traits you possess, but just because you're you. That's the most secure kind of love. That's the kind of love you can rest in. Deuteronomy chapter seven, God says to his people, I did not love you because you were more mighty than the other peoples of the world or more numerous. I loved you just because I loved you. That's the kind of love that we get in the gospel. That's the kind of love that God gives to his people. A love that's not rooted in performance. It's rooted in his grace. Follow his example, yes, because you're already his children. Live out the identity that's already yours. His love is the cause of your obedience, not the result of it. That's the gospel order. Do you know it? Probably you don't or not really. The default position of our heart is to relate to God like it is to relate to everybody else. We think we have to prove ourselves. We think we have to achieve. And the order of the gospel is, yes, follow his example. Look like him because he's already brought you into the family. It's the gospel. It's the gospel order. Do you know it? That leads us now to the second point of our sermon. We have to see what is the gospel call. 
So Paul says in verse one, the gospel's already brought you in, follow God's example. And you say, well, what does that mean? That's so abstract, like to follow God's example. Paul gets specific. Verse two, if we were a people who were following God's example, what that would look like is that we would be a people who walk in the way of love. Translated differently, live a life of love. And for Paul, that's the heart or the summary of the Christian ethic. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to live a life of love. If we were looking more and more like God in our world, we would look more and more like love, a people of love. This is the great commandment. In fact, when Jesus was asked by some people during his time on earth, they said, what's the greatest commandment? You know what, like, you know, you're the teacher, boil it down. What's the thing we should be focusing on? You know, the Bible's a big book. Give us the reader's digest. And Jesus looked at them and says, the greatest commandment, it's this, love God with every fiber of your being and love each other as yourself. All of the commands hang on those two, love God and love your neighbor. It's the whole ethic to be a follower of God. It's rooted in love. Now, love can sound abstract. Love can sound vague. What do we mean by that? But wonderfully, this passage is practical because no sooner does Paul say in verse two, walk in the way of love. He says then, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. In other words, when Paul says, I want you to be a people of love, he defines that kind of love as sacrificial. He says, look at Jesus. The kind of love that I want to be present in your life is the love you see in him. What kind of love is that? It's a profoundly unselfish love. It's a love that sacrifices self for others. Jesus on the cross does what? Dies in his people's place. He becomes their substitute. He takes the judgment they deserved. He goes where they belonged. And Paul's saying, If you're following God's example, you're going to live a life of love. And the kind of love that I want you to show is a sacrificial, unselfish, others ahead of yourself kind of love. That's what we're meant to be and to do as a church, as a people following God, a profoundly unselfish love. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the American civil rights leader, had a number of sermons on the nature of Christian love that have profoundly, they've impacted me a great deal. They've really helped me understand what it means to love and even to love your enemies, to love the people who are against you. And in one of those sermons, Dr. King is reflecting on the parable of the Good Samaritan. I don't know if you know it, it's in Luke chapter 10. Jesus is teaching and he says, there's a guy, he's on a road. It was a very dangerous road, the kind of part of town you'd want to avoid. And one day this guy's journeying on the road and he gets mugged. All his stuff is stolen and he's beaten pretty bad and he's left for dead on the side of the road. And then Jesus, as he's teaching his parable, he says, two priests come by. Now the priests, these are the religious leaders. These are the pastors. These are the religious establishment. And when they come by and when they see the man left for dead on the side of the road, they actually move to the other side of the street and they keep walking. And then some time goes by and the Samaritan comes along. Now in Jesus' parable, the Samaritan is the outsider. He's the, the marginalized person. 
And yet he comes by and when he sees the man left for dead, he runs over to him. He gets off his donkey. He goes down, he starts bandaging this man's wounds. He puts him on his own donkey. He brings him to a nearby town. He starts nursing him back to health there in that inn, the hotel they were at. And eventually when he has to go, he takes a bag of money, puts it on the counter and says to the innkeeper, take care of him. And anything more you spend, I'll pay you back when I return. So Dr. King is preaching on this parable. And he says, do you want to know what the difference is between the Samaritan and the priests? When the priests walk by and they see that man left for dead, here's the question they ask. If we stop to help him, what's going to happen to us? Maybe the robbers are still around. Maybe we're going to get mugged ourselves or maybe we're really busy. We can't afford afford the disruption in our schedule. So when they see the man left for dead, they say, if we stop to help, what's going to happen to him? Uh, Sorry, what's going to happen to us? But when the Samaritan comes by, he asks a radically different question. He says, if I don't stop to help this man, what's going to happen to him? You see, it's a question not of self-preservation, but of self-sacrifice. He's actually not thinking about himself, but he's looking at the man in front of him and saying, if I don't give something here, what's going to happen to him? Motivated by love. Rooted in a profoundly unselfish ethic. And Jesus says, that's the kind of love that you're meant to show in the world. You're meant to show a sacrificial, other-centered, self-forgetting kind of love. You say, okay, well, what does that mean practically? Most of you are not going to have an opportunity to show love the way the Samaritan did. So here's five examples, practically, of ways that we might actually today start becoming a much more loving people. Five quick examples. First, attention. We live in a distracted and a distracting age. One of the most loving things that we can start doing as a people is start to say the most important person is the person right in front of you. That when you're having a conversation, you give the gift of presence. Like you actually listen and pay attention to the person in front of you. You're not scanning the room. Who can I network with? Who seems cool? You're not thinking about your phone and all the pings that are coming in, but we just give ourselves fully and our attention fully to the person right in front of us as an act of love. Are we able to do that? Are we able to sacrifice the need to always be scanning and searching and scrolling and say the person in front of me, that's the person I need to love right now. Attention. Second example, not just attention, but speech or words. You know, just because you were right in something you said doesn't mean you were loving in how you said it. Our words can do a great deal of hurt. They often do. Some of the most profound pain that you've ever experienced are because of words that were said to you or words that you said to somebody else. And what would it look like for us to be a people who start thinking about how our words can and should be loving? Ben Okri, the novelist, said this, He said, if only our words turned into the visible chemical equivalent of their true value, like an acid, then we'd be more careful. You see, our words collect in us. They collect in the soul and they either transform or they poison people's lives. He's right. Words are immensely powerful 
And so as we speak to each other, as we use our words, we shouldn't just ask, was I right? Was that true? Was I clear? Was I persuasive? But was I loving? Is there a more loving way to say that? And if so, that's the way of Jesus. Attention, speech, how about time? No one in our city has enough time. Like, are you busy? Join the club. We're all way too busy. And that's a problem. That's a different sermon. But love is all about disruption and interruption. Love is all about being able to have your schedule thrown off course. It takes time to show love. It takes time to serve others. It takes time to give back to your community or to your church. And love is willing to be interrupted. It's willing to have things disrupted and to say, I'm going to choose to allow that disruption as a way to be present in love or to say no to something so I can say yes to something else. None of us have enough time and love is costly. Here's a fourth example related money. There's a handful of people in our world who have so much money that they don't know what to do with it. Most of us though are not like that. Most of us would say, yeah, we could do with more money. There's always needs. There's always financial pressures. Absolutely, especially in a city like this. And yet, to be a Christian, God is inviting you from a scarcity mentality to an abundance mentality. Where we look at our resources, the stuff that we have, and we ask the question, not how much can I get, but what can I give? How can I serve? How can I take the resources that are mine and use them to enrich and strengthen and support the people around me from a scarcity mentality to an abundance mentality. Fifth example, last one. How can we learn to love others through our hurt? How do you love the people who have hurt you? In big and small ways, life is just series of conflict in which there's relational pain that we're always going through. And the question is, how do we love those who hurt us? And the way of love, the way of Jesus in those relationships always means two things. On one hand, it means learning to be able to speak truth. It means not minimizing, ignoring the pain that you've experienced, but being able to say to a person, that hurt me. And here's how it hurt me. And it's not okay. It means using our words to work for justice, to bring accountability. And at the same time, it means learning to forgive. It means learning to refuse that desire to take revenge. You know, justice is about the right thing taking place. Revenge is about making somebody pay just because they hurt you. And the Christian is all about justice, but doesn't seek revenge. It's not about vengeance. Refusing to allow bitterness to fester and grow in your heart. Big topic, but what are we saying? Even in our hurt. There's opportunities to practice and show love. Now I could give 10 more examples. You can think of your own. But in big and small ways, we have a chance to be a people who show love. To be a people who practice love today. The costly sacrificial love that we see in Jesus. You say, I know that. (laughs) I know I should be more loving. I think all of us could admit to some degree that we're far more selfish than we'd like to be. And yet, just admitting the problem doesn't change us. We don't want to be selfish, and yet we are. We don't want to use our words to hurt people, and yet we do. We know we could be more generous with our money, but we hoard and keep to ourselves. 
We know we should be more loving, but we're not. And here's where the good news comes today in our sermon. The gospel doesn't just call us into a life of love, but it gives us the power we need to change. Look with me again at verse two of our passage. Paul says, walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. What's the power of the gospel? It's to admit first, yes, you're not nearly as loving as you could be or should be. But look at what Jesus has done. Say it simply, here's the power of the gospel. The only way you're gonna be a person who learns to love sacrificially is if you're a person who realizes that you've been loved sacrificially. You see, when Paul says, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, do you realize that you are included in that us? You know, it's easy to read the Bible very abstractly. Like, yes, I know Jesus loves us, humanity, people, groups, churches, but he loves you. You are the object of his sacrificial love. Or let's build on the metaphor that we were painting earlier. Do you remember I said Dr. King in the sermon about the, good, uh, the parable about the Good Samaritan? At the very end of that sermon, you know what Dr. King says? Jesus is the ultimate Good Samaritan. Think about it. Who were you in that story? You were the person that was left for dead. You were the person that's been stripped, beaten, left for dead by your selfishness or by your sin or by suffering. And what did Jesus do? The Samaritan gets off his donkey, but Jesus comes down from heaven itself and he moves towards you. And what does he give? He gives you his ultimate attention. Like the Samaritan had to say, yes, my schedule is going to get interrupted, but I'm going to help this man. And Jesus, Luke 9 says, sets his face like flint to go to the cross. Nothing could distract him from doing what he had to do to save you. The Samaritan had to spend lots of his money in order to bring this man back to life. But Jesus doesn't just spend money. He gives, in, he gives everything. He, gives, he surrenders his whole life and he dies on the cross for you. You see, how do you become a person who's more financially generous? You know, money has a powerful hold over us. How do you become a person who's financially generous? It's not just by trying harder. It's by seeing Jesus sacrificing himself for you. This is the logic of 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. See what Paul's saying? When you see what Jesus did, it changes you. When you see what he did sacrificing himself, it makes you a generous person. It's not trying harder. It's seeing that you're actually quite stingy. <laughs> but Jesus saved you. Jesus gave himself up in sacrifice and surrender. In whatever example in your life, the change you need comes from the gospel. Or think finally about this. If we just sat for 30 seconds in the quiet and our minds weren't distracted, it wouldn't take you long to think about something hurtful that you said to someone else or ways words hurt you. We're all aware of that. But how do we change? How do we get a grip? How do we use our words in loving ways? Hear the words of Jesus. That even as he died on the cross, 
even as they were mocking him and he was dying that agonizing death, Jesus's words are, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they are doing. Like never has a man spoken so lovingly like the Lord Jesus did. And when you see that, when you see him loving you through his attention and his time and his speech and his generosity, even in his hurt, slowly but surely it transforms us into a people of love. And that's why when we in just a few moments celebrate the Lord's table today, we hold the bread and the cup in our hand. These are the living tangible reminders that Jesus died for you, that it's not an abstraction, but he gave himself for you. And when you see that, as you see that, it helps us become a people of love. Now, last thing I want to say before we do come to the table. The gospel call, walk in the way of love. The gospel's power, look at Jesus. But finally, consider the gospel's beauty. It's not just the right thing to do to be a loving person. It's also the most beautiful possible life that you could ever live. Look at the very end of verse 2. Paul says, Jesus loved us. He gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That word fragrant, it means pleasing or delightful. When Jesus lays down his life in sacrifice, what is it? It's beautiful. It's pleasing. It's delightful because it's the culmination of love. And here's where I want us to close today. If we as a church were known for our love, like when people thought of Reality Church London, they were like, that's the most loving place I've ever been. If people all throughout our city thought of Christians not as self-righteous and smug, but as the most genuinely unselfish people in the city, do you realize how beautiful that would be? It would be a fragrant offering in our city. It would be stunningly beautiful. It doesn't mean it would always be easy. It doesn't mean there isn't pain and hurt and suffering. But even in that, there would be such profound beauty. I'm going to close in just a minute with a quote that I read probably at least once a month. It's from a guy called B.B. Warfield. He was a professor at Princeton in the middle part of the, the early part of the 20th century. And he has a sermon. You can find it online. It's called The Imitation of Christ. And it's all about how we as Christians are meant to follow Jesus' example, to be a people of love. And at the end of the sermon, he describes, which I'll read in just a second, what it would look like if we took seriously this call to walk in the way of love. But the reason I'm setting it up like this is to say, sometimes you hear preachers talk and you think it's all just stuff. You know, it's just content, it's conceptual. But if you know anything about Warfield's story, his whole life was marked by needing to care for someone in his family who was battling a chronic illness. And every single day in order to care for that person meant costly love. It meant sacrificing his desires, his opportunities, his own wishes in order to love this person who so desperately needed care. And what Warfield shows us, not just in the sermon quote, but in his whole life, is that sacrifice, it wasn't humdrum, it wasn't just duty, it was absolute beauty and delight. Because the more you give yourself in love to another person, the more beautiful that life becomes, not just theirs, but yours.
So listen to these words, and as I read them, pray. Let's pray that God would help us to be this kind of church. Warfield says, Jesus was led by his love for others into the world to forget himself and the needs of others. Self-sacrifice brought Jesus into the world, and self-sacrifice will lead us, his followers, not away from, but into the midst of others. Wherever people suffer, there will we be to comfort. Wherever people struggle, there will we be to help. Wherever people fail, there will we be to uplift. And wherever people succeed, there will we be to rejoice. Self-sacrifice means not indifference to our times and fellows. It means absorption into them. It means not that we should live one life, but that we should live a thousand. Binding ourselves to a thousand souls so that by loving them, their lives become ours. Could you imagine what this church would look like if we lived and loved like that? What this city would look like if churches and Christians throughout London said, wherever people suffer, we're going to be there to comfort. Wherever people fail, we're going to be there to uplift them. Wherever people succeed, we're going to be right there to rejoice. We're not indifferent. We're absorbed through love into the lives of other people. That's the kind of city I want to be a part of. It's the kind of church I want to be a part of. Walk in the way of love, just as God loved us in Jesus and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering to God. Let's pray and let's ask God to help us be that kind of community. Our great God, as we now prepare to come to this table, as we come to hold in our hands the tangible reminder of Jesus' love, we ask that you would transform us into a people of love, that in big and small ways, today and every day, we would be so shaped and saved by Jesus that we would become a loving people, that we would be far less self-absorbed, far more other-centered, far quicker to forgive, slower to speak, slower to anger, that we'd be more generous, that we'd be more courageous, that we'd be a people who live a life of love. Help us to do that now. Feed us even as we come to this table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.